part two of chapter 12 of Homecraft Rugs, Their Historic Background, Romance of Stitchery and Method of Making by Lydia LeBaron Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two, Equipment and Construction. The equipment for hooked rug craft consists of a rug frame, a rug hook, a patterned foundation, and working medium. To this, it is advisable to add a pair of shears with curved tips or with blades on a lower level than the handles, which are bent at angles to give the desired shape. These types are used by oriental rug makers. Those with curved tips are also known as surgical shears. Prices of these types of scissors are not more than those of regulation shears of like grade. Of the several types of rug frames, the most convenient are those with collapsible standards, for they do away with the necessity of fixing chairbacks or sawhorses for frame rests. The collapsible standard frames belong to the type of furniture called tuck-away, which can be folded flat and put behind doors or in closets without occupying any appreciable space. Prices for these frames vary according to models and grades of materials used in construction. As they can be had as low as frames minus standards, the price is no barrier. A simple frame that anyone can make consists of four strips of 7 eighths or 1 inch boards, 2 inches wide. Two of the strips should be 40 or 50 inches long. These are called carriers because they come at top and bottom of the frame and hold or carry the rug, which, if too long to be entirely exposed, is wound about one or the other, as the rug maker prefers, while the part exposed is worked. Afterward, the rug is readjusted by rolling the worked part about the other carrier and positioning an unworked portion. The two shorter strips are called stretchers. They are 18 or 20 inches long and are side pieces holding the frame extended. Four large metal clamps, obtainable at any hardware store for a few cents each, are needed to fasten corners of the frame securely at right angles. There are finer frames with mortised carriers through which are run spreaders having at each end six or more auger holes bored at distances of one half to one inch apart. Pegs, fitted into corresponding holes in the spreaders after the frame is put together, hold strips at perfect right angles. Another model of frame has a stationary peg one or one and one-half inches from each end of the spreaders. Auger holes in carriers are fitted over the pegs when the frame is set up, and a shutter or latch holds them firmly in place. Both of these rug frames are excellent and can also be made at home though not quite as easily as the first. To ensure straight rugs, it is imperative that corners be at absolute right angles when frames are squared. Three types of rug hooks are in common use, and a fourth, which is a mechanical substitute called a punch hook, although in reality a needle. A rug maker should choose the kind best suited to her hand and method of work. The metal should be well-tempered and the wooden handles smooth. One model is straight, another has an angular shank, while the shank of a third is curved. Besides the regulation shapes of handles, 
One comes broad, curved, and flattened at the top like a doorknob. The straight shank is short. When in use, the handle is grasped with the right hand in such a way that the top fits into the palm of the hand. The straight hook is held with the thumb and fingers of the right hand. Both this and the hook just described are held vertically over a rug when the hook is pushed through the foundation, but by a twist of the wrist are turned at an angle when a loop is drawn through the fabric. The handle of the bent hook is encircled with the thumb and fingers of the right hand held palm down and almost parallel with the foundation during the hooking. The hook is pushed through the foundation by turning the hand toward the thumb and is raised after the loop has been caught by turning the hand from the wrist back toward the little finger. The shapes of hooks themselves vary. The usual one has a rather shallow croche and quite pointed tip. It comes in two or more sizes for coarse and fine mediums. A rug crochet hook is precisely like a regulation crochet hook made of steel. The shank is fitted into a wooden handle. It is made to supply a demand of rug makers who prefer a crochet needle to a rug hook for the craft. For some mediums, the number 10 aluminum or metal composition crochet hook is admirably suited to hooked rug craft. Such a hook does not pierce the strands of a foundation textile nor separate filaments of mediums, however lightly twisted, such as rope jute, roving, etc. The immense popularity of hooked rugs is responsible for the invention of a mechanical device for producing the looped pile. The punch hook is the name of the tool, but it is a misnomer to call it a hook, as it has none, a variety of needle taking its place. Rugs made with the punch needle, however good they may be, are therefore mechanical replicas, not genuine hooked rugs, though they have the same loop structure. The punch needle comes in many forms, but in each the principle is the same, the automatic mechanical feeding of the medium through the threaded tool into the fabric. Primarily, this was all that the needle did but almost immediately a gauge was added whereby, with no other care on the part of the rug maker than the initial one of fastening the stitch regulator to suit the height of the loop determined upon, the stitches would be automatically of the same size and the pile unvariable. As will be seen, the sole remaining handicraft element left for the rug maker to instill into her work is the spacing and direction of the stitchery. The work lacks the individuality of genuine handicraft products, those slight idiosyncrasies and discrepancies that are the proof and charm of handmade articles. The technique of the punch needle differs from that of the rug hook in that with the former, work is done on the wrong side and with the latter on the right. The pattern to be done is uppermost but the tool pushes the loops through and they remain on the underside, which becomes the right side. The value of the punch needle lies in the rapidity with which the work can be accomplished. This is a point that cannot be overlooked in modern times when speed is a force and effect an object. Cost does not enter into the consideration as the punch loop rug costs as much as the others to make. The punch needle has its excellent uses, however, 
in reproducing rugs where the mechanical precision of stitchery is an asset. It is well employed, therefore, in the making of floor coverings simulating cut-pile loop carpets, such as moquette. These can be fashioned in rug sizes with both pile and pattern closely resembling the genuine, when yarn is the medium. Distinctly modern rugs, suited to up-to-date interiors, are easily possible to make. The foundation of any hooked rug is of prime importance, since the life of the rug is dependent upon the durability of this fabric. A heavy homespun linen is best, and is found in many antiques. Today, it is considered too costly. A rather coarse, not too closely woven, machine-made linen is a good second choice, but burlap is the most usual and has been from the first. It has the necessary straight weave, while the loose texture permits the crowding of stitches without straining the textile nor tiring the hand when hooking through it. The regularity of the weave facilitates laying of patterns. Suitable mediums are numerous, such as rags, rug yarn, and ordinary yarn in two or more strands, roving, jute, rope or three-ply, candle wicking, chenille, carpet raveling, raveled out knit or crocheted woolen garments, sweaters, scarves, etc., stockings, jersey cloth, etc. The cheap one is fabric and bears the commonplace and inadequate name of rags. But if these are thought of as worn fragments of old clothes, we must revise our conception of what rug rags are lest threadbare pieces of material be used in which the wearing quality is gone. Rugs made from such textiles have little or no durability. In the lore of rugs, the word rag means either new stock or the strong and good parts of garments discarded because they no longer fulfill their purpose as wearing apparel. The reason for so considering them may be that the garments are out of style, faded, worn in some places only, while strong in others. Or it may be that the wearer has tired of them after they're serving well for a sufficiently long time. Or the goods may be in faded or spotted pieces, not fit for other use, as in rug strands. These blemishes are no barrier to rug making, for faded goods appear mellowed and spots give a stippled effect. Remnants of cloth already on hand, new cloth bought expressly for the rug craft, and selvages procured by the pound from mills are today frequently used. Indeed, there is a growing tendency to buy mediums. Correct amounts can be obtained in just the right colors without having to resort to the dye pot, and strips can be rapidly torn in lengths suitable for the work. In olden times, when rug makers spun the yarn for weaving and home dyeing was a necessity, the first use of the textiles was for far different articles than floor coverings made of torn strips of cloth. To put new cloth into rugs was an unindulged extravagance, and hooked rugs were distinctly thrifty floor coverings. But it cannot be denied that homemakers realized that carpets as well as clothes were essential to comfort, and many garments would have proved wearable longer if women did not have an eye to their excellence in rugs. Today, 
hooked rugs are thriftily made of discarded garments or made of new cloth economically bought or of mediums other than textiles, but they come under the category of rag rugs. There is a quaint charm about the term that suits the craft of the early American colonists, and it is this that one is loath to forfeit even an idea, although mediums sometimes are as fine as specially made all-wool rug yarns. The present vogue for hooked rugs has brought out so many stamped burlap patterns that there is a tendency to use them rather than to create individual designs. It was so in the vogue of 1870, which accounts for crudity in many antiques of that era. This tendency is unfortunate, as it robs the floor coverings of distinction and the rug maker of an essential interest in her work, that of creating beauty. The first hooked rug makers designed as well as executed. Apart from the patterns which are drawn freehand or made by copying or tracing about such commonplace objects as compasses, bricks, plates, baskets, flowers, etc., other patterns can be adapted and designs created from simple motifs. This is so easy to do that anyone with any artistic ability whatsoever can have success by following directions that are given. Oriental motifs can be traced from rugs or first taken off by counted stitches on drafting paper ruled in squares, as for cross-stitch. These motifs can be cut from cardboard and arranged on a rug field. A few motifs scattered over a field and surrounded by one or more borders all done in oriental colors, will make an attractive rug. Caucasian and Chinese rugs are particularly good types to simulate, as their motifs are bold and easy to copy. Large diamonds can be arranged on a field, see mosaic rug designs, and a few oriental motifs can be enclosed in each, with the field outside left in plain color. For borders, use two or more simple border motifs, hooked in different colors on a plain background, and edge each border with a line of contrasting color. Excellent results will be gained, always providing color schemes are oriental. These rugs are stressed because of their adaptability to modern schemes of interior decoration. Patterns can be squared off, enlarged, and copied from book covers, rug designs, pictures, etc., as a copying artist squares off a painting. The rug foundation is divided by horizontal and vertical lines into square sections, each one corresponding to a like division that may or may not be visibly measured on the surface being copied. If the original cannot be marked off, cover it with tracing paper and square that. In each section of the rug foundation, draw the outline that occupies the same section in the picture. This is one of the simplest methods of copying, whereby enlarging can be done accurately and simultaneously with the first drawing. It has only to be tried to prove its efficacy. Folded patterns or motifs can be used today as acceptably as by old-time hooked rug designers. This method is one of the oldest known to rug craft. See Chapter 17, Old Patchwork for New Rugs. After opening out the motifs, cut duplicates from cardboard and arrange them on the foundation fabric. Trace around them with a soft pencil, 
a crayon, or a paintbrush dipped in India ink, liquid bluing, or any stain. Arrange in design form and enclose the field with one or more borders. One quarter of a pattern can be designed and a stencil cut from it where duplication of sections is desirable. This method can be employed when designing rugs in some of the other crafts. A little experimenting and drafting one's own patterns will give the needed skill. Certainly, if in olden times rug makers were venturesome enough to create their own patterns, modern rug makers should not be more timid. If the result is not satisfactory in the first instance, reverse the foundation fabric and make a new design. An added interest centers in rug craft when both design and workmanship are by the rug maker. When the rug pattern has been developed and outlined on the foundation, it must be fastened into the rug frame before the process of hooking can be begun. There are three methods of securing a foundation to a frame. Each is given in detail for the rug maker's choice. It can be tacked in, sewed in, or lashed in after being bound, hemmed, or overcast. The pattern may completely cover the foundation or occupy but a portion of it only, as in oval, semicircular, round, half-oval rugs, or those with irregular edges, as instanced in some scroll patterns. A frame requires no special preparation when the foundation is to be tacked to it. Use substantial thumbtacks, or short tacks with flat rather than large heads, easily removed with a tack lifter, and do not put them in close together. The foundation textile, turned in along the edge for extra strength, must extend beyond the pattern far enough for the hooking to be done to the line of the rug. It is impossible to take the stitches through the fabric on a line touching the frame. When a foundation is to be sewed to a frame, it is necessary to nail the edges of a fold of ticking or one edge of carpet binding to each carrier strip. The binding must extend over the inner edge of the frame. If the foundation is not hemmed or bound along the line of the rug, but has some goods extending beyond it, the foundation may overlap the strips and be held to them with running stitches. The pattern on the foundation must not be so close to the textile on the frame that the latter would interfere with the hooked stitchery. If the rug is hemmed or otherwise finished on a line with the pattern, then it must be sewed to the binding on the frame with stitches long enough to allow some space between the binding and the rug foundation. A faggoting stitch is used. In this way, the hooking is kept free from the textile nailed to the frame. If a foundation is lashed to a frame, each strip of wood is wound with carpet binding or strips of stout cloth that does not fray. The binding must not interfere with auger holes or pegs. The foundation, when lashed in, does not touch the frame, but is kept sufficiently far from it by the long faggoting stitches to permit hooking to be done along the very edge of the foundation. Therefore, rugs so fastened to a frame are generally finished along the edge of the rug. Stitches are taken first at rug corners, securing them in position. Then from one corner, with a large needle, threaded with very coarse cotton or carpet thread, doubled. The foundation is caught with a short stitch, 
The thread is then run in a slightly diagonal direction over the frame and through the foundation. This process is continued from corner to corner. The taut thread presses against the wound frame and stitches are held securely. A favored method of fastening rugs to frames is to secure the top and bottom of the foundation, however finished, to the carriers. Then the stretchers are put in position and fastened at exact right angles. If the rug is longer than the stretchers, the foundation is rolled about the top or bottom carrier until it is short enough to be stretched smooth and even when the stretchers are in position. When the exposed part of the rug is hooked, the frame may be taken apart and the foundation already worked, wound about the opposite stretcher until another section of unworked foundation is exposed for hooking. Then the frame is again set up. Frequently a rug is removed and its position shifted without taking the frame apart. Craftsmen who make a business of selling the rugs they make frequently have extra large frames in which rugs of carpet size, six by nine feet, can be stretched full length. The pattern must always be uppermost when a foundation is in a frame. Always fasten corners of rugs to frames before sewing the edges. To center a foundation perfectly, double it and position the middle spot at the edge to the middle spot on the frame. When secured, draw the foundation edges from the central fastening to each corner and position them. Then fasten the foundation between points. A method that has been found satisfactory by the writer is to turn rug edges along the pattern line over the right side of the foundation and stitch flat, either by running stitches or machine. The foundation should first be cut an inch wider than the pattern and the edges overcast. Cut away the textile that overlaps at corners and overcast the diagonal lines to form a trim miter. When a rug is hooked, the edges are neat. A foundation so finished can be fastened to a frame in any of the ways given, where an extra foundation edge is not needed. When the rug foundation, pattern uppermost, has been centered and set up in a frame which has been adjusted to an easy height for the rug maker, the operation of hooking in the medium conveniently at hand should start. The position of the hand differs according to the type of hook used. It is well to place on one corner of the foundation some lengths of medium in colors that will soon be needed to carry out the design. These should be constantly replenished as the hooking proceeds. The medium itself may be narrow or wide. The size of it is more responsible than anything else in determining whether loops shall be long or short and stitches coarse or fine. In preparing rags, it is well to have an approximate gauge for widths of them and to know how best to ensure even sizes. A firm woolen textile, such as ordinary weight flannel, can be cut as narrow as one quarter inch, and this is the weight of cloth best suited to hooking. All textiles used together must approximate the same sized strand, even though thinner cloth may have to be two or three times as wide. Whenever possible, strips should be cut or torn lengthwise of the material, and it is best to have them not more than one and one-half yards long. 
Few woolen textiles less than one quarter inch wide can stand the strain of hooking. They are likely to pull apart and separate. When cotton goods, the weight of chambray is the medium, the width of strips advised is one half inch. As cotton folds and creases under pressure and has not the resilience of woolen textiles, the effect of the two widths in the different materials is approximately the same in finished rugs. It must be remembered that there is no hard and fast rule for widths. The discretion of the rug maker must be used, and she may decide to use either finer or coarser strands than mentioned if she makes a rug of very fine or very coarse stitchery. In some instances, different widths are used in one rug, a fine, short cotton loop sometimes, but three sixteenths inch high forming the background for a design in coarser cut woolen pile. Hold the medium to be hooked in the left hand between the thumb and forefinger and close to the foundation beneath the place where the stitchery is to be done. The hook is held in the right hand over the stitch spot. The tip is pressed through the foundation and the medium is caught by the hook, which is then pulled up, bringing with it the end of the medium. The first and last stitch of any medium is always a tip of the strand. A stitch must never end on the wrong side of a rug. Each stitch, except those in which a color is begun or ended, consists of a small loop drawn through the foundation. The loop three-eighths inch high is approved, but one-quarter inch loops are frequently found. Even shorter loops are used at times when strips are very narrow. Embossed patterns have the loops even higher to allow for rounded, shearing effects. A little knack that the writer has found helpful is to press the hook against the foundation when drawing it up with the loop so that the opening is slightly enlarged, permitting the curved part of the hook to come through without a hitch. The stitch is taken precisely as for timbre work, even to the twist of the wrist. Only a few threads of foundation should be allowed between stitches, as it is the pressure of one stitch against another that alone is responsible for the firmness of the superimposed surface of pile. A coarse medium occupies more space than a fine one and necessitates stitches being set farther apart. Also, the coarser medium naturally calls for a higher loop. An uncut pile is shorter than a cut. For the latter, a little extra depth should be given to allow for shearing. Hooking should progress in a general way from right to left and from edges toward the center. Designs are outlined, however, before being filled in, and it is often wise to fill in motifs and then do the background around them. Even so, a general direction toward the left and also toward the center can be followed. By working from the edge to the center, any puckering of the goods that might otherwise occur along the edges is averted. It is the practice of the rider to make one border, or at least three rows of hooking, around the edge of each exposed rug surface before filling in any of the field. Rug makers, however, are privileged to suit their own preference in the method of hooking. For instance, some rug makers work half the exposed surface in a frame and then turn the frame and do the other half. Some work in rows, 
some with stitches purposely set at different angles. Some try to have all loops of exactly the same height, and some deliberately vary them. The direction of the stitchery can supply interesting variety to hooked rug surfaces, while differing heights of loops in sheared rugs allow occasional shorter loops to remain uncut. This is thought to supply extra strength. Loops should certainly be uneven, and many left uncut in a cotton rug that is sheared, as cotton does not felt but merely frays. A frayed pile is not especially durable, while a felted pile is. The wise rug maker shears woolen pile and leaves cotton and jute in loops. The uncut loop pile is also capable of great diversity of effect. Loops may be very short and close, making a fine, compact surface, or long and close, making a rug of deep pile. They may be short and of wide span, giving a flat effect quickly achieved, or both length and span can be increased for even coarser results. To make a knot-tied hooked rug pile, follow the instructions for timber work, making the spaces between the first and second stitches very short. After drawing the first loop through the foundation, do not let it slip off the shank of the hook, but keep it on the needle. When drawing the second loop through, also catch the short end of the strand left hanging when the first stitch was taken. Draw both through the loop on the shank. Clip the ends and pull to make a tight knot. It will be seen that it takes two operations to complete one stitch. Repeat throughout the rug surface. Although this is a simple stitch, it takes far more time to fashion than the plain loop without giving greater beauty or more durability. It is not surprising, therefore, that the knot-tied pile was seldom used in hooked rug craft. Whatever the kind of hooked rug chosen for making, a hint to the amateur craftsman will prove helpful. Avoid too great precision of stitchery. It is not to be found in antique hooked rugs, and these are the correct models to follow. A little incident may give enlightenment in this connection. A coterie of women was engaged to make hooked rugs. It would have proved a lucrative occupation if rightly pursued. Everything of the best was put into their hands, fine wools, excellent designs, and correct patterns. Yet their work was a failure. This was because the women refused to grasp the fact that they were making folk craft rugs and not reproductions of machine-made floor coverings. The precision of their work with its parallel lines of straight stitchery had no charm nor appeal. It was not true to type, and the enterprise had to be abandoned. A community enterprise which did enjoy an artistic success was that of the Sabatos rug under the direction of Mrs. Douglas Volk. The name was taken from Mount Sabatos, Maine, where the work was done. Mrs. Volk developed a method of knot-tied pile that brought her into prominence in the forwarding of this community work in rug craft. The name Sabatos Rugs, therefore, stands for a specific type of hooked rug of rare excellence, with foundations hand-woven and wool specially grown for the yarn. Another venture worthy of mention was promoted by Helen Albee in what were known as Abnaki Rugs. 
In them, Mrs. Albee sought to raise the standard of hooked rag rugs rather than to forward any different kind of stitchery in her community enterprise. Her group was established at Pequawket, New Hampshire, where the Pequawket tribe of the Abnaki Indians had been wont to roam. The name Abnaki appealed to Mrs. Albee, who modernized the spelling and adopted it for her rug work. Wool rags and burlap foundations were the basis of the craft in which handsome hooked rugs of both loop and sheared pile were fashioned. The shearing of a rug of whatever sort is a task for an expert. An evenly cut pile can be had only by very careful manipulation of the scissors. The final cutting of the pile of an oriental rug is considered so particular an operation that a mechanical device has been invented and is frequently used on modern eastern carpets. This is mentioned to emphasize the fact that the shearing of hooked rugs requires great deftness. Part of the knack of shearing hooked loops is to run the finger under the rug where the pile is being cut, elevating it a trifle. Only the tip of the loop must be snipped off, thus separating the loop into two strands. The scissors with angular handles or those with the curved blades, surgical scissors, are recommended. They are used by oriental rug makers. The blades in the first type skim the surface evenly as the shears are manipulated while the hand working them rests on the rug. This is possible as the handles are on a higher level than the blades. The pile should not be raised, as suggested, when these scissors are used. The danger of gouging the pile of a rug is eliminated when these or curved shears are employed, for the tips do not enter the pile. Shearing rugs with ordinary scissors is precarious work and should be left to experienced rug makers should they choose to use such shears. Fancy shearing is expert work, for the background has to be on a lower level than the motifs and therefore clipped closer. The motifs should have been hooked in higher loops. The pile is often graduated from the background level to surprising heights in the middle of a design. This high relief work is bizarre and done to impress the uninitiate with the skill of the rug maker more than for any other reason. Fancy shearing is not an idea peculiar to hooked rug makers. It is one of the Chinese methods, also to be found in a very limited number of Anatolian rugs. It was abandoned in the latter rugs and is done in a very reserved way only by the Chinese. If the oriental rug makers discard this fancy carved or embossed clip pile, hooked rug makers can do no better than to follow their example, for they are the finest creators of handmade rugs the world has ever produced. It is the pile of the oriental rug that all other pile rugs are fashioned after. When yarn is used for hooked rugs, the pile can reflect some of the same beauty. When rags are the medium, the rugs have their own distinct individuality, quaint and interesting. While it is customary to have rug edges hemmed or bound, occasionally rugs are lined. Denim and ticking make stout linings. Carpet-sized hook rugs are made in breadths and seamed together like pile carpets. 
hold the widths together with right sides facing each other. Overhand the seams, taking but a few threads up in each stitch. When a few stitches or a short needle fold has been done in one direction, reverse the order of stitches to give a crossed stitch. The seam must be so narrow that it will flatten out when breadths are opened. Carpet breadths are sewed by counted threads, thus ensuring perfect joining of design motifs, and the sewing of hooked carpets should follow this same method. When a rug edge is finished after being taken from a frame, the foundation, cut one inch wider than the rug, is turned back and hemmed, or the foundation may be cut a little narrower before turning and a binding tape be sewed flat over it. Rugs with curved or irregular edges frequently need to have little V-shaped pieces snipped from the turned-in edges to make them lie absolutely flat. When this is the case, the rug must be finished off with a flat binding sewed carefully over the turned-in edge. The hooked rug maker who creates her own designs and works them deftly in well-chosen colors can have as fine examples of work as did the old rug makers. These new rugs also may be accounted worthy of being inventoried and bequeathed to future generations. End of chapter 12